happy birthday, Paul. Well, thank you very much. Although I'm, I'm sad anybody's noticed because then I can't continue to lie and say I'm 55. You know, I, years ago, you know, you hear women a lot of times say, well, I'm 39 again. And I thought, well, you know, 39 isn't believable. But when I hit 55, it occurred to me, I'm old enough that, you know, whether you're 55 or you're 58 or you're 62, who knows the difference, you know? And so I thought, wait a second, I could continue to lie and say I'm 55 for a long time. And, and then I got this idea that I could just leave it in my bio, you know, kind of in the same way that politicians, a lot of times you see, they have their picture, you know, if you go to some website that lists all the representatives or congressmen or whatever, and you realize, well, this guy's 79, but his picture looks like he's 42, and they just leave the same picture up. Well, I thought, well, maybe I could, you know, somehow just keep saying I'm 55, and sooner or later it would be in print that I was 55, even though I was older. And then I could say, look, here's evidence. There's evidence right there. I could cite a, a reliable source to say that I'm only 55. And unfortunately, it's not as easy to get your age into the paper as I had, had thought. So anyway, today, which as we record, tomorrow I'll be a day older, but today I am 60 years of age. And uh, you know, 40 was the new 30, 50 was the new 40, 60 is just old. But there's a silver lining, at least I'm hoping there is for me, and that is this gives us a, a chance. We've done this several times where on my birthday, I'm figuring, you know, people, you're supposed to be nice to people on their birthday. So if I pitch you that you need to help support this program, which of course is trumpeting freedom, not only across America, but throughout the, the known world, uh, that you know, maybe you'll be sympathetic. And we think we do uh, say some good things and bring out some great stories and, uh, and amplify what people are saying and doing for freedom. And we hope that you'll help us. Since I'm 60, you know, maybe $60 would be a great contribution. And there'll be ways to click things and so on and get to the place where you could make a, a contribution easily if it's in your budget. But when you think about whether it's $60 or if you want to make me 10 years younger and make me 50, or if you want to just age me, boom, like that and make me 100 or 1,000, you could do it. Whatever age you want me to be, I'll be that today. Younger, I don't get as much money, but I feel better. If it's older, I get you know, more money for the program, but you know, I don't feel as good. Whatever works for you. Seriously, we don't survive. I can't continue to work. Tim probably won't continue either. You know how he is. We can't do it without you, and I hope you'll help. And if it's in your budget, uh, I hope you'll help right now because we don't know how much time we have left, and we need to get in all the licks for freedom that we can. So help if you can. And what is it this week, Tim? Is it this week in common sense that uh, – well, This Week in Common Sense is where they go if they want to subscribe to the podcast, but thisiscommonsense.com is where you go to uh, find your column of today or any day, and it's What Was I Thinking is today's column, and you can click right off that for several links down on the, at the bottom of the page, and they give all you want. There's also Celebrating 20 Years of Common Sense with Paul Jacob on that page. Any, any day of the week you get there, it's right there on the top on the right, 
and that will allow you to uh, donate to your heart's content. Yes. And if you don't like 60 years of age, 20 years of doing common sense is another, uh, another good number. Um, and, you know, we, we probably should talk just a little bit about what was I thinking, which I, as I recall, Tim, several years ago, this is the second time we've done a riff on what was I thinking. I don't, you know, I don't want to hide and pretend that we didn't a little bit retread this. But I remember when we first did it, I had written this long thing <laughs> and I sent it to you and I said, there's a lot here, Tim, but I just don't know how to make heads nor tails of it. And you came back, as I recall, with the, this is great, Paul. Let's, let's use the theme of what was I thinking, because I've managed to get myself into a few pickles here or there, a few tight places in politics. And, uh, and it worked like a charm. So my, my hat's off to you for putting my uh, gobbledygook into uh, fine form. And, and basically what, what, what we were asking, what was I thinking about, is the fact that, well, I'll, I'll go through a few of the, of the tough places maybe that I found myself in. I didn't register for the draft. I believed Ronald Reagan not only believed that he was going to end the program, or at least hoped he would, when he said he would as a candidate in 1980, but I firmly believed and have always believed what he said about it when he said the draft or draft registration destroys the very values our society is committed to defending. And when you recognize the draft as that, it seems to me that if you're uh, 18 or a 20 year old kid, so to speak, it's not exactly a kid, but, uh, but a young person, then you can't go along with it. And if you're president of the United States, you've got to end the program, not continue it with some ridiculous excuse. So I think it was, I think it was Ronald Reagan's weakest hour, unfortunately, but I'm glad I did what I did, and it's kind of interesting. I ended up spending five and a half months in federal prison, re-education camp. It didn't work, didn't take, and so I remain, you know, it's federal correctional institution, so I remain totally uncorrected. And it, it was an interesting experience, not only in that I went into it thinking, this is what I've got to do, but it's going to wreck my life. It's going to ruin my future economically, I'm, I'm you know, not going to school, how am I going to find a job, I'm going to be a felon, it's going to be terrible, really undermining my future. And in reality, it's been, even from an economic standpoint, one of the best decisions I ever made because I think getting involved in politics, it was always there as something that, you know, I didn't want to hide from people, I'm very proud of it. Uh, but, but just whether I was proud of it or not, it's the kind of thing that if you're taking a job in politics and you might be one of the spokespeople or, or public, I wanted my employers to know. And instead of it being a disqualifier, it became a way that they could look at, at me as a potential employee, uh, uh, in, in whatever campaign and say, well, you know, this guy's kind of serious. This guy does what he believes is right. 
and uh, it was it was really a, it's been a huge positive in my life. So that was I mean, you know there's that's a, a 180 degree difference than I thought it would be. The other interesting thing about that experience is that I certainly realized in Arkansas. Uh, very strongly pro-military, and of course my beef was not with the military, it was with conscription, with forcing people into the military. I think the all-volunteer military is the way to do it. I respect people who decide I'm going to go defend my country. I didn't want to be in a situation in which I was forced to, not to defend my country, but to be part of interventions and regime change wars uh, around the globe, uh, so I wasn't about to, to join the military uh, at that at that time, and then still wouldn't today because I just you know I, I don't trust our political leadership, and I don't believe it's about defending our country. But if it ever is about defending our country, and I'm an old man now, but whatever an old man can do to defend freedom in this country or elsewhere, I'm ready to do. And I think there's a lot of us who are ready to do it, whatever age, whatever gender, wherever we are in this country. And it's why we don't need the draft, because ask the people to come forward as free people to defend the country, and they will. But I, I really thought that uh, in Arkansas and other places that the response would not be good. And I, I traveled around the country uh, as an underground fugitive for several years before returning to Arkansas. And when I went on trial, I was somewhat surprised, uh, not that everybody agreed with me, because they didn't, but how much people listened to what I had to say. And even when they disagreed, I hear the TV downstairs, I forgot to shut the door. Uh, so I'll, I'll have to get up here in a second and grab it. But um, but I, I was just surprised that they, even when they disagreed, they respected what I had to say. They, and I, I had to have people come up sometimes on the street, you know, it was in the papers a lot and I'm, I'm getting ready to go to court and, or afterwards when I got out of federal prison and somebody would see me at somewhere and, and they would kind of say, aren't you the guy? And of course, you know, your first thought is a friend or foe. Uh, because, of course, on the draft at that time, I think it's changed a little bit in our direction, but at that time it was very split right down the middle of the country in terms of whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. And so I think friend or foe, and sometimes they would say, hey, I, I love what you're doing, I totally agree. But probably the biggest response was, I don't agree with you, but I... I'm glad you did what you thought was right, or I respect that you did what you thought was right. And that level of respect for people we disagree with and discourse, it was, it was just heartening. And it made me realize that not that we can just blindly trust the people as if the people are always going to be right or perfect, but that we can have a little more faith we kind of have to, and that uh, that we we can have a little bit more faith in the people. As I have said oftentimes, I don't trust the people. I just trust the people a whole lot more than I trust the politicians. So I'm going to run, uh, shut my door. Okay, very good. <laughs>
So, and then, then of course, I luckily went from fighting the draft. I get out, I went to work for the Cato Institute where probably my wife kind of helped me get that, that job, put in a good word for me. I, I hope she still would put in a good for, word for me today. And I've been pretty good. I think she will. But, you know, I, I worked for Cato for a while. I then went to work for the Libertarian Party. And then after that, got involved in the term limits movement and in initiatives. And that was just a wonderful experience where I literally worked all over the country with all kinds of activists, conservatives, liberals, libertarians, greens, uh, term limits is supported. And to me, it's the consensus issue across the board. Uh, the American people love it. The folks in, in the political class, the insiders, the politicians, they don't love it at all. But, uh, but that was a, you know, it was a wonderful time in my life. And of course, it led me to get more and more involved with the initiative and referendum process because without initiative and referendum, we're begging politicians to term limit themselves and they're not interested for the most part. I mean, they're not interested in, in what we say unless they think we're going to knock them out of office. And so when you're talking to them about term limits, you're talking about knocking them out of office if they do agree with you. So it was, it was a very tough issue and only came to be because of the initiative process in much the same way I think that tax limits after Prop 13 swept the country largely through the initiative process, but also kind of moving legislatures because of the momentum, but that momentum was created because the people could put it on the ballot in California and pass it against all odds. Very, very important. More recently, uh, we have a number of states now, I don't know if it's six or eight, that have legalized recreational marijuana. A number of states, I believe it's more than half, have legalized, and I, I'm throwing this off the top of my head. I didn't think about talking about this, so I hadn't, hadn't looked up the specific statistics. But a lot of states have passed medical marijuana, which now being passed in legislatures, it's now being discussed in, in the Virginia legislature. <clears throat> it's viable as an issue in Congress, but it wasn't an issue until people put it on the ballot and were able to take this issue to the public. And it, it shows how important the initiative process is. When the issue, even though a majority of the people in a given state is evidenced by their vote, favor medical marijuana, the politicians were scared to do it because they're looking at what's going to make someone vote for me or vote against me. And I think they concluded, probably correctly, that the anger of people who, you know, are, are very adamantly pro-criminalization, who want these drugs to be illegal, who maybe have lost a loved one and blame the drugs. And, you know, drugs are inanimate objects, or not always inanimate, but, but they're objects, and they don't, they don't control our actions. Um, unless we ingest them sometimes and then they have an impact. But in other words, there are people who, for all the reasons that we would sympathize with, are going to be very much against legalization because they felt the pain of drug abuse. And, uh, and so politicians were very wary about why do I want to even step into that issue? It, it's only been when the public intervened, and I think the, the main reason the public intervened was it was on the ballot in front of them 
and also because it was dealing not just with legalizing drugs as a recreational uh, aspect, which I view marijuana much like I view alcohol, and I have no problem with people drinking alcohol recreationally, nor do I have any problem with them smoking pot or eating a brownie or however they ingest it uh, recreationally. But I don't think recreational marijuana would have succeeded until people got a better feel for how that would work. And that came by having medical marijuana. And the issue there was denying people who might be dying of cancer a drug, a substance that eased their pain. And people like other people. People care. They don't want their fellow man to be in pain. And so that was a, it was a dynamite issue. But to not go too deep into the weeds, the bottom line is it needed a way to get to the marketplace, the political marketplace, and the initiative process was the only way that was going to happen. And then, of course, in working in the initiative process, I did a, uh, work with folks in Oklahoma doing a tax uh, 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 issue, which basically didn't cut taxes, but it's called the Taxpayer Bill of Rights. They have it in Colorado. And it basically says government can grow and spend money uh, more year after year by the rate of inflation and the rate of population growth. But if government wants to grow more than that, no matter how much money comes in, if government wants to spend it, they have to ask permission of the voters. If government wants to raise taxes because not enough money's coming in, they have to ask the voters. All of a sudden, the voters are in charge in a real concrete way. And uh, anyway, great issue, uh, fought tooth and nail uh, by public employees unions, uh, what I like to call uh, the mommy welfare, the folks who are getting you know, benefit from government and daddy welfare, the folks who are billionaires but getting all kinds of benefits, their own daddy welfare uh, from governments. And uh, we, we did not have much success in expanding it, uh, outgunned in, in lots of different ways. One of the places that we would have won by all the polls was Oklahoma where they threw the initiative off the ballot and then went after three of us called the Oklahoma Three and if you go to thisiscommonsense.com and you put Oklahoma 3 in the search engine, you'll find a lot of, a lot of uh, the detail there. But after having, as a young man, faced the, the you know, prospect of going to jail for refusing to register for the draft, here I was as a much older man facing an attorney general who wanted to put me in prison for 10 years for supposedly hiring people who weren't residents to collect signatures, even though uh, I didn't directly hire them and the people who did directly hire them were told by the state that that's a-okay because they asked if it was okay. And anyway, I won't go into all the weeds, but I'll tell you, it really concentrates the mind when you think, because of my activism, I might spend 10 years in jail. Because of my activism, my kids may not get to go to college. And when I was facing the draft uh, prosecution, my oldest was a year old. And I hated, hated being away for those five and a half months. Uh, hated to put my wife and everybody through that um, and, to, and for me to have to go through it. 
But as this thing in Oklahoma developed, uh, my kids were older. They were old enough to be scared. And I had a, a good feeling the whole time that this is a ridiculous charge. They have no evidence of any crime being committed. I'm going to be uh, acquitted if it ever goes to trial. Now, it's interesting. After a year and a half of being under indictment, and this attorney general, Drew Edmondson, who ran for governor in 2018 and got beat, but after you know a year and a half, they finally dismissed things, but they never, ever took it to a judge in even a preliminary hearing. They held one day of preliminary hearing. They never finished it. And I think the reason they dismissed it is because they realized this judge and, and anybody who knows how these things work, it's a very low bar for a judge to say, okay, you have enough to take this person to trial. They would not, I believe, have to even taken us to trial. But it's a, it's a very scary thing. And, it's, and, it, and we have politicians who have the ability to launch this sort of indictment against people and to threaten them in a very serious way. And, um, you know, sometimes as you get older, you kind of feel like you've paid your dues. And the one thing that I think I got out of that Oklahoma uh, just nightmare was the understanding that, let's face it, we have never paid our dues. The dues are never going to be paid up so that you can skate for the rest of your life. If you believe in freedom, you better embrace eternal vigilance because there's no other way. And that's true if you're facing the monster we've talked about a lot in the last year, the CCP, the, Communist China, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, and the totalitarian state that they have uh, uh, with millions in concentration camps, and it doesn't get talked about nearly enough, and what they've done in Hong Kong, and their threats to Taiwan, and frankly, as we've talked about, their threats to American universities and Australian universities and the rest of the world that they've tried to kind of buy silence from. Um, but it's also eternal vigilance here at home against prosecutors who might want to steal people's stuff through civil asset forfeiture. It's, it's eternal vigilance against uh, officials who want to you know, truncate, if not kill, the initiative process whereby citizens can check politicians. You know, that it was a, it was a late in life, uh, maybe, I, I hope I live long enough that it won't be deemed late in life, but it was a wake-up call. And one that I kind of think maybe I needed. Maybe I was feeling it was, uh, life was too easy. And, uh, and, and so there was a lesson there. And, and of course, then through working through initiative and referendum, and on other issues, starting Liberty Initiative Fund, which is a group that works directly with people putting measures on the ballot. We were able to put police camera measure on the ballot in Ferguson, Missouri, uh, help defeat a forever ratcheting up gas tax in Massachusetts. You know, we've been able to engage in a lot of different efforts and win some victories. But it's also just been heartening. And, you know, as I was, this was kind of a retrospective of, what I've been able to do in my life, the, the thing that you remember, and the reason that it's fun, as much as it's tough work, is that you remember all the people you worked with. And, and a lot of times, you know, this has been my occupation. 
So even though maybe I'm working 24 seven, my wife always jokes that, you know, you're making minimum wage if you add up the hours and, and how, how much you're making. But I've worked with a lot of people who have been with me on an all night, you know, counting signatures or who have been with me in freezing temperatures, collecting signatures or, or scorching heat. And I realize they're not making a penny. They're here as a volunteer uh, and I've always been very, very inspired by the people that I've had a, just the honor to work with from term limits to initiative and referendum, the criminal justice reform. I just have a, a tremendous respect for the, the volunteer political activist out there who is smart and savvy and, uh, and who's not afraid to roll up their sleeves and do some work. So with... Um your respect for fellow travelers and workers in the field of liberty. Uh, you're asking just for the, for the volunteer, just a little bit more, not much more, maybe just 60 bucks. That's right. 60 <laughs> bucks more. And, and if they can't afford 60 bucks, it could be 20. It could be, you know, the truth is in this day and age, internet fundraising, sometimes it's, Hey, send $2. But the truth is $2 adds up with a lot of people. And, and I'm asking people to help keep this program going because I think we provide a real service in tying people together, in, in finding someone who's working on criminal justice issues, who then starts to listen and see that, well, you know, we've got some things we need to fix beyond the criminal justice system. Or someone who comes in because, by golly, we need term limits, but then sees, you know, there's also a lot of ridiculousness coming from government on foreign policy or on whatever policies. And so I think, you know, our goal is to build a network of people who care about this country and this world from a, the standpoint of understanding nothing is more important than political liberty. Wealth is not a substitute for political liberty. If it is, you might want to move to China. It's not. And, and so the, if there's one belief that underpins this program, it's that the most important element in our future, and maybe more importantly as you get older, our children and future generations, is freedom. I used to give a talk, uh, I wrote it when I was traveling around talking about what was happening in Oklahoma to me and, and to my uh, other two co-defendants. And it, I would begin it by saying, you know, they, they've asked me to speak here today and I hope they're not disappointed because I've really come to sell you insurance. And I made the point that we have insurance because we know something could happen to us and we want those who live on that we love to have resources, to have money. Uh, it might mean that you, know, you die and your kid's young or something, they can't go to college or, or what have you. And, and yet I realized that having a lack of funds is something that a lot of people can overcome. There are other people that if you're a smart student, they'll give you a scholarship. You can work, you can earn your own money. But that the greatest gift we could leave our kids and future generations is to take whatever freedom we have been given 
Um, not that we don't deserve it all. Nobody, nobody gives us the right to have freedom, but the freedom we actually have in the real world and to protect it and to maybe even expand it and hand it off to the people who come after us. That's the kind of insurance that I want to invest in and that I've been investing in. And I'm asking everyone listening to invest in it as well and, and work through this program and, and work through other things that are out there because we're all in this together. Very good. It would be bad if I did not once again repeat the name of the website. This is commonsense.com. And uh, maybe as a little lighter note, you could explain why is it called this is commonsense.com? Is there something that you say regularly? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a good, uh, that we should explain that. Well, first of all, I took the name uh, from Common Sense by uh, Tom Paine. And I think Tom Paine uh, is just one of the most amazing uh, figures in history. And I won't go into a whole lot about Tom Paine, but I just think uh, first, first known attack on slavery published in America was written by Tom Paine. Uh, cared enough about freedom that even though maybe he, he overestimated the, the goodness that would come from the French Revolution, he was in France uh, and, and almost, almost found himself under the guillotine uh, because he wanted them to be free too. He was, uh, he was a citizen of the world. He wanted freedom spread across the globe. Uh, and I just have, have so much respect for him. And of course, that's why we, we uh, uh, call it common sense. And uh, I began doing it as a radio commentary. We didn't send it out by email. We didn't put it on Facebook. We didn't have a website. We just did it for radio. And at the end of each script, I would say, this is common sense. I'm Paul Jacob. And, uh, and so when we were looking for a website, everybody had taken common sense as if they didn't know it was reserved for me. And, uh, and so we had to go with something else. I thought, well, hey, we're, our clothesline is this is common sense. So, and that way we could say good things about ourselves, which I always like to do. I don't want to put anyone else out. I'll just say good things about myself. Uh, that's why it's called thisiscommonsense.com. And so go there. There's a lot of information. We have information about the draft, which I've talked about uh, earlier uh, last month, at the end of last month, uh, of course, with the anniversary of the execution of the White Rose, the first White Rose students, protesters against Hitler in Germany. Uh, we have the seven uh, pamphlets that they sent around Germany at the site. A lot of other stuff. We have uh, common sense there. Thomas Paine's, I mean, it's not hard to find it on the web, but why go anywhere? You can just go to thisiscommonsense.com. And there are links there that if you thought, oh, wait, I meant to make a contribution and I forgot, you hit the link, it's easy. Very good. I think we got them covered. Uh, and maybe we should return to this before we sign off completely. But on Monday, you were talking about the people again and advising them to do something different. And not for you or not for the cause so much, but for themselves. Yes. Basically, the title said it all, Don't Panic, Prepare. And the coronavirus, you know, it's, it's scary with what it could be. I, I think, you know, early on, I think there were some people who they hear all the hype. And, uh, you know, I have friends of mine who, oh, all this hype, it's ridiculous. 
and I've kind of looked at it all along like this sounds like it could it could be more problematic than you know SARS was a, a pretty serious thing but it really wasn't serious in the US it was serious in Asia and uh, it just looked like this could and 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 you know let's hope it turns out that we've seen the worst of it and and you know and so on but it could get a lot worse and it's the sort of thing that you're going to hear stuff on TV and I, I hate the, you know, like the morning TV programs, news programs, where they're constantly telling us how to do things that, that pretty much everybody already knows how to do. Like we're, you know, two years old or we're, you know, not, not quite with it. I didn't want to, you know, th that's not our goal to, to replace them in that, in that kind of uh, nannying type way. But just to make the point that governments are going to try to protect people because it's in their interest, but that we can't depend on somebody from on high always taking care of us. We got to take care of ourselves. And uh, and I think in in many ways we're preaching to the choir. It's not like it's not like my audience is is looking for me to you know explain. Hey, there's this disease. You might want to take some action, but. Uh, do like to point it out and and of course if if people need medicines it probably makes a lot of sense to stock up uh, foodstuffs other things um, and so you know it just it it's uh, it, you know the the Boy Scouts be prepared was not a bad motto uh, they may be in bankruptcy now but it's not because their motto was not not correct and uh, and and so you know we we just sent a very simple message and and provided a bunch of links that people could you know maybe maybe uh do things a little bit easier in terms of preparing themselves and their family for whatever comes and of course if the coronavirus turns turns out to be not as threatening as it appears then great we'll be more prepared for the next thing and and you know i'm not suggesting anyone buy 16 years of food or build an underground tunnel to a huge shelter or anything, but just that we, that we kind of use some common sense. I think people should also remember if they have not been a regular reader of yours or a listener on the radio way back when. It was 10 years ago we stopped that, I think it was, something like that. Uh, yes. So, yes. So you we were on for, for a full 10 years at least on the radio. But um, on Tuesday you uh, talked about uh, local regulations on land and and uh, and usage of houses and one of your themes at common sense uh is that you are most effective at the local level so when we we often deal with local subjects for that very reason yes and and one of the things that we're always wanting to do is find an issue that somebody solved this issue in you know Little Rock, Arkansas, well, now we can tell people in Spokane, Washington, or in, you know, upstate New York, hey, here's how maybe you could solve that issue. And then the law might be slightly different in those places and they have to adjust. But we're always looking for success that we can spread and lessen. Sometimes those lessons come not from success, but from defeat that we and all you can do in life is embrace those defeats and learn from them. I love the slogan i think it's athletic uh usually on athletic things that i either lose I, I either win or learn not win or lose win or learn and so we're, we're constantly trying to do that because 
what we want to do, especially through Liberty Initiative Fund, which is a group that I formed back in uh, 2012, is that we want to build a network of people who know how to get things done, especially ballot initiatives. And most cities in this country have the ballot initiative process, slightly less than half the states. But there are states like Texas where there's no statewide initiative process, where every major city has a viable initiative process, and so do a lot of the smaller cities. There are states like tech, uh, uh, New York that have no statewide initiative process, but there's one in New York City or Albany or Rochester or so on. Um, and so we want to build this network far and wide, and we, we want people to know what's working, what's not working. And this particular commentary, uh, Zoned Out, was about a woman who has a successful, not, not, she's not getting wealthy, but she's making, I believe it was $35,000 right around that a year, selling clothing out of her home. And she's selling it online, so it's not like, you know, the people are beating a path to her door. But she does have inventory in her home that she then ships out, and that, ran afoul of a zoning regulation. And of course, the law is the law, except how insane do we have to be in this day and age when more and more uh, businesses are online and when more and more people are working out of their home that we would put, put someone out of business be on, on some regulation like this. And we can, you know, any judge can read the regulation and decide whether that's valid and constitutional. But enough of that already. Let's, let's start looking at our, our laws and realize that this internet thing is not a flash in the pan and that we need to start enabling people to earn a living, not being some ridiculous uh, referee who constantly says out of bounds, you know, you're fired, you can't make money. So uh, I think it's a, I think it's a wake up call. And again, it's one little place, but you know that what happened in, I believe it was uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, maybe it was uh, Alexandria. Now all of a sudden I can't remember. Uh, see, advancing age, but- uh, It was Fairfax. Fairfax okay. But it, you know it's happening all over the country. Uh, so uh, it, it's the kind of thing that, that we need to attack. And as people do attack it, if you can get information, you know, come let us know because we want to spread any success we're having against this sort of anti-economic activity and, and spread it so other people can protect themselves. And it strikes me, Tim, that you know, so often uh, we hear about the divide between rich and poor and inequality and so on, but shutting down an entrepreneurial woman who's working out of her home making $35,000 a year is not helping to make people more, you know, economically equitable. And I, I hate these gaps and so on because you know, you can close a gap by making rich people poor. Uh, that's not helpful. And you can have a bigger gap if your neighbor wins the lottery. Even if they give you some of the money, they're not going to. But if they did, there's still going to be a huge gap. Is that bad? Was that, a, was that bad news that, that your neighbor now can afford things? Uh, it's good news.
there's no problem with a gap. The problem is when people cannot afford their own things, when people can't be economically self-sufficient. Um, that's the problem. Uh, and when they can't move up whatever economic ladder there is, or at least don't have the freedom to move up, that's a, that's a problem. And that's what this is all about. All the talk about you know, if you're going to talk out of one side of your mouth about income inequalities and then out of the other, shut down people who are working their butts off to earn a living, you've, you are part of the problem. And you're not, you're not helpful. You're not nice. Uh, so anyway, I think that's a, it's, a, it's a little issue that's a giant issue. You know, it really is at the local level that so much of our lives are lived. Of course, that's where, where do we live? We live in a specific place. And uh, many of the laws of our local uh, jurisdiction affect us uh, really profoundly, uh, or at least annoyingly sometimes. And that's kind of the case. It happened in uh, Oregon, I believe, for your next column, which was engineering government limits about a guy who was merely trying to deal with his wife's yellow light you know, run, running a red light in where she lived, Beaverton, Oregon, I believe it was. Matt's Jarlstrom, I believe was his, his name. And he has a engineering degree, but it's, I believe, from Sweden. And, and so it's not, he, he can't use it in the United States because he, in Oregon, whatever licensing or other things, whatever hoops he had to jump through, he had not jumped through. And of course, he's not working as a full-time engineer, so he had no reason to jump through those hoops. But his wife gets a ticket for running a red light, one of these red light cameras. And of course, my listeners, if they're, if they're regular readers, they know this. If they're not and they're just listeners, let me tell you, there has never been a public vote on red light cameras where the public did not say, no, no, we don't want red light cameras. And the dirty little secret behind red light cameras is that very often they kind of shorten, truncate the yellow light to encourage what? To encourage more ticketing so that there's no safety issue. There's not people who are zooming through red lights. They're zooming through a light that they believe is gonna be yellow, and it's gonna be yellow for maybe three or four or five seconds, but it's not gonna be, because the people who want to rip you off have decided to let's make it only a couple seconds of yellow, so the red comes in faster, and, and there you go. Now we're making more money. Are people safer? No, they're less safe but the government makes more money. And one of the most interesting things, you know, we, we talked earlier about when we were doing this just for radio, and I would go to a studio uh, once a week and record the next week's uh, commentaries. And I did one on red, red light cameras, and the owner of the recording studio came down when someone told him what we were doing and told me the story of how he had gotten a ticket for, go, for running a red light close to where the studio was. Uh, I know exactly the place. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, I got a ticket there as well. Um, but he gets a ticket for running the red light. And he realizes, oh, well, it seems to me they shorten the yellow light, but okay, now I know what to do. When the yellow light hits, I better 
hit my brakes and stop so I don't get a ticket. So a couple of weeks after he got his ticket, he did what any smart person would do, realize the world has changed a little bit, I'm gonna adjust my behavior, and I'm gonna to comply to the best of my ability with the rules and regulations around me that I can comply with. And so he sees the yellow light, he stops, doesn't run the red light, but gets pounded by the car behind him. Because of course, people have certain expectations from all the times they've dri they're driving, that, and especially in this area, every time I think, oh, I, was, I, I might have run that red light, and, and I look behind me, and there's like two or three cars behind me making it through as well. In this area, I used to be pretty quick off of a green light. You have to wait a couple seconds because people will come through the, not only the yellow, but the first couple seconds of the red, they are going through it. And I think in part because the yellow isn't long enough for people to make decisions. Uh, but anyway, that doesn't make us safer. It makes us less safe. And so that's what this whole red light camera is, is just a clear example of what happens when citizens are not in control of their government. We have all the, we've got all the, the look of citizens in control. We talk at barbecues and dinner parties about, you know, freedom and democracy, and we complain about the choices we have for president or any other office, but we kind of have the sense that, that, you know, it is our government. Yes, we make decisions. And frankly, when you know that we have red light cameras all over the country, even though every single time, and we're talking just hundreds of elections and hundreds of times that people have said no, and yet we still get red light cameras. There's a big problem. Now, this particular case in Oregon is not just about red light cameras. It's also about the fact that the Professional Standards Board for Engineers decided to go after this guy. So there's a little collusion, corruption. We're gonna make this guy pay not because he's really trying to compete without being licensed, but because apparently they didn't like him showing very clearly through clear evidence that this was a scam. Not only corruption because of the way that police dealt with the lights, but corruption all the way to this professional board that went after this guy. And what came out that we wrote about was the fact that his analysis was proven to be absolutely correct. We were being ripped off, he was being ripped off, and what he got for his hard work, because it's not like he was making any money to, to do this investigation, what he got for his hard work was more trouble from, again, the insider types who want experts like them to decide everything. And, you know, at, at one point, you, you know, at some point you can kind of think, look, there's certain things that we need experts for. If the doctor says, you know, here's what I found in your x-ray, uh, most of us aren't arguing with them because they know more than we do. But boy, is it a slippery slope whenever that knowledge, that expertise gets walled off as something special that the rest of us ought not to question, then we are in for expertise that is damning and dangerous and uh, so this is a this is a, a heck of a tale 
uh, about how corrupt things can be at the local level. And that's something people need to realize too. I think sometimes people have this attitude that, you know, Congress is far off and they don't listen to us. And that's, and that's true. Um, and I think Congress is worse off for all of those reasons than most of our local governments. But if we don't pay attention to what our local governments are doing, they are every bit as tyrannical as the Congress can be. There's a, there was a great line uh, uh, in The Patriot where Mel, uh, Mel Gibson uh, is talking to people and it's they're kind of trying to decide are we going to break from England or not and he makes the point that Look, I don't want to trade one tyrant 3,000 miles away for 3,000 tyrants one mile away uh, Meaning that hey, I'm not necessarily on the side of King George But I'm a little wary about all of my neighbors trying to tell me what to do, too and uh, We we have to we have to be in charge. Why I love the name citizens in charge and the whole initiative process and so on. Citizens have to have a way to make the final decision to say, no, we are the ultimate decision, not you as our representatives. And it's just so simple and obvious that if you believe in representative government, the whole reason to have it is so that we all don't have to be at the Capitol or at City Hall every night. We delegate that authority to them, but it's our authority. And the moment they forget that, we are in trouble. And we're, you know, that's, that's what it's all about. So this is, I thought, a, a really important case. And we had dealt with it, I guess, what, three, four years ago, or five or six, and here it was finally getting to a conclusion. And that's another thing that I've learned the hard way, having spent a lot of years working in politics, and that sometimes I think it's easy for people to forget. You get involved in an effort, an initiative maybe, and you win. Okay, now I can go back to my regular life. And, and of course you can to certain extents. But oftentimes it's not over because the insiders, the bureaucrats, the politicians who didn't like your victory are not necessarily going to let it stand. They're not going to go, and sometimes they do, but it's become horribly rare. They're unlikely to say, oh, well, the voters have spoken. And therefore, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do my best to implement their will. No, we live in a country in which the voters have spoken, so now I'm going to work my hardest as their representative to undercut their vote and to diminish it and ultimately to repeal it outright. So oftentimes, even though you're, you've won a victory, you're involved in a fight for years after that. We saw that with term limits, where the voters voted overwhelmingly, and then literally two years later, they're bringing it up, or four years later, let's change it. I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal back in 2018 because uh, Nashville, Tennessee, passed an initiative for term limits. We were involved in working with the people there back in 1994. It won with over 70%, I think it was like 75% support. Not close. Since 1994 up to 2018, the people of Nashville have had to vote on term limits seven times. That's almost every four years there's a new vote on term limits. 
all put on by the council, one through the council member raising a bunch of money from special interest and doing it by initiative. Every single time it's been to either repeal the limits or to dramatically weaken them. And every single time the voters have said no. But is there any reason to not think that two years or four years from now, they're not gonna be back demanding that the voters have to vote again that way? It's, it's, uh, it's a little sick, but it's, it's, it's the reality we have. And it's, it's, it's like any other situation. If, you, if we allow them, to think they can get away with things, they will think that and they will try to get away with those things. And if we're not paying attention, they'll get away with all of them. We have to be there at the ready and we need more and more mechanisms to fight back. And that's really what, what initiative and referendum is. It's no magic. People can do bad things we don't like by initiative, just like we can do good things. But it's a way that we can counteract, oh, excuse me, <laughs> it's a way that we can counteract the power that legislators have and, and Trump it, no pun, pun intended. And so uh, speaking of Trump, why don't we segue to maybe uh, the most depressing thing of the week. I happened to vote in the Democratic primary in Virginia this last week, Super Tuesday. And I will just tell you straight out, I voted for Tulsi Gabbard. And I disagree with Tulsi Gabbard about 75% of the time, probably, maybe more. I don't think she's great on all the issues, but her message was so focused and clear against regime change wars like Iraq, like, like Afghanistan, like Libya, like, like Syria, which we often don't think of as a, as a war that we're engaged in, but it is a war and we've been engaged in it. Um, and, and so I felt very comfortable, one, knowing she's not gonna win, uh, so it's not my fault. And uh, you know, if, she, if, if she's gonna win, I might have to think, well now, what are all the bad things she's gonna do? But she made that message so crystal clear that it made it very easy to vote for her and to endorse that message. And it caused me to think back to the 2016 election and the Libertarian Party candidates, uh, Gary Johnson and, and Bill Weld, and they got more votes than any Libertarian candidates ever got. And yet I am so deeply disappointed in that campaign because they didn't have a message, because um, I could vote and say I'm voting Libertarian, but I think a new person who first voted in 2016 would not have known really what, what do libertarians believe? What is the issue? What is the crying need, the, the uh, reason there of, uh, of, you know, why I should vote libertarian? It seems like they never gave it. They weren't clear on let's change our foreign policy or we need criminal justice reform or whatever the issue or issues were, you need a way to wrap it together and let people know where you're coming from. And I think that all those votes kind of went to waste because I'm not sure the person who voted libertarian ever had any idea what libertarians stand for because the campaign didn't give them that message. Uh, so, you know, that's sad, but of course, um, that's a lot of uh, lead up to basically say that Tulsi Gabbard on 
Tuesday, snatched a delegate in American Samoa, uh, Mayor Bloomberg's big victory. And so the rules have been. It was his big victory because he also got one delegate, right? Yes, yes, that's right. She got a delegate and he got a delegate. Although he got the most votes. So it was a victory for him. He, okay. he won the state, or it's not a state. He won the territory, he got a vote, and his vote is somehow better than the one vote she got, as I understand it. Um, but but the, the interesting thing is that's the rules. You get a delegate, you get into the debate. And of course, because Elizabeth Warren dropped out, we had to hear all the hand-wringing about how misogynist America is, how women don't get a fair shake, how, you know, I guess men are terrible, and, you know, some are. Uh, well, Democratic men, apparently, because this is the Democratic parties. So we're not talking about the evil Republicans or the independents. We're talking Democratic men are, are sexist and misogynistic. Except that even that is completely ridiculous because a majority of the overall electorate are women. Women comprise a majority of the electorate. The only way that misogyny could have stopped Elizabeth Warren is if it is women who are practicing misogyny, who are misogynistic. Uh, I hate that word because so often it's used to mean men who are stupid and objectify women. Um, which is a huge problem, uh, people objectifying anybody, whether it's women, men, men, women, whatever, it's not good. But that's not the same thing as misogyny. It's not about hating people. It's about being a selfish cad uh, who thinks other people are just things for them to, to use or to, you know, to, to not view as full-fledged human beings. And I guess there's an element then of being anti-women, but I think it's, it's used in, in a completely off way. Uh, and that's kind of just a tangent because the, the real problem here is this has nothing to do with any sort of sexism against women. Um, I have three daughters and I think the biggest problem in sexism is that women are, there is not societally uh, as big of expectations for women in terms of their career and what they're going to do in the world. And I think that's a big problem. It's the bigotry of low expectations. What, what George W. Bush, I think, correctly said about the way we deal with, with minority students is that somehow we don't expect as much from them and that that's damning. And I see that in, in you know, the way the world treats women. And it matters to me because I want my daughters to have every chance. And I want your daughters or any other woman to have every chance in this world to do what they want. And I don't care whether it is to stay home and have kids or whether it's to be the CEO of some big corporation or president of the United States. If they want it, I want a world that says, well, then you go for it. And I want that same thing said to men. There's, you know, and, and to me, that's, the, that's the, the undercurrent I see of sexism that, I'm, that I frankly have been troubled by. I also think that the, there are demands in kind of a expectation way for women, oftentimes 
put upon women by other women that they have to have it all that they if you stay home there's something wrong with you that you have to raise kids and be a ceo and be president of the united states or somehow you haven't fulfilled your your role and the whole point to me is you don't have a role other than the role that you choose and so i, I do see some real structural in the sense of it's in people's heads not that it's so much in society and I'm sure there's some there. Let's find it. Let's root it out. But let's not attack people because they decided that Elizabeth Warren was not the best candidate. Because it was decided, I think, not at all by her, her sex, but by her mistakes on the campaign trail and by the fact that they didn't think she was going to be as good a president. And let's face it, um, Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump. There's no, there's no evidence that the American people are not willing to vote more for a woman than for a man. And so I think this is hugely counterproductive. And, and just we have got to get off this ridiculous anti, you know, anybody who, if a woman doesn't win, it's because people are bad, people are sexist. Um, you know, if a man doesn't win, it is it because they didn't like men? I don't think so. But here's the interesting thing. Now here comes, here comes Tulsi Gabbard, who's checked all the boxes, who by the rules deserves to be in the next debate with the two white guys. And I got nothing against white guys. I love myself. I love you, Tim, <laughs> as a friend. And I like other white guys. Nothing against white guys. But why does a party who acts like it's a crime to be a white guy then push the woman off the stage by changing the rules. And the DNC, as soon as they realized that Tulsi Gabbard, who has the audacity to be pro-peace, who after fighting and helping people who she fought with and seeing those people suffering from injuries and dying, doesn't want any more regime change wars, that's just unacceptable. And, and I think anybody who, who seriously argues that somehow this was just a rule change that would have happened anyway if Tulsi had other positions on regime change wars, that wouldn't have made any difference. I think you're kidding yourself. This was, we cannot have Tulsi Gabbard on that stage. One, because she'll beat the pants off of both of those guys because she's going to connect more with the American people than socialist Sanders or sleepy, sort of senile uh, Joe Biden. And, and so we're going to complain about the lack of any real sexism and call it sexism when Elizabeth Warren loses in an election in which the majority of the voters were women. But we're not going to notice sexism when the DNC changes its rules to knock the one woman still in the race out and make it only between two men. That is, I mean, we live in strange and interesting and scary times. And it's even worse than that because both Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris complained that there were no longer any women in the race. That's what they did this week after Super Tuesday and and they're both women, and they both don't ignore the fact that Tulsi is still campaigning. She got to delegate. 
and she, and it's and they just she's written out. She's written out, I think, for the same reason, in a sense, why Republican women are written out of the women, you know, need to be president thing. Uh, well, and and in the same way that if you're a black conservative, you're not considered black. And I have a lot of black conservative friends, and it's it's just so rude and so dehumanizing by the people who are constantly dreaming up completely fine things and pretending that that's somehow terrible and dehumanizing. And then if you don't agree with them politically, you're not really black. If you don't agree with them politically, you're not really a woman. Talk about dehumanizing. And, and that's exactly for both of those women to do it and for there to be no pushback because the media is in on the game. The media is part of the scam. And, and I say that now, I don't think they, they collude. I don't think they all get together in a room and go, okay, we're gonna screw over Tulsi Gabbard. They don't have time for that. Instead, they just hire all people who are way on the left and who see themselves as the guardians, the experts who know everything and who have to tell us stupid American people who don't have the education and the brilliance of these media people, they, and I, I continually see this on, on TV and in the newspaper, there are news stories where at the end of the news story, I know exactly how they want me to think, but I don't know hardly any of the facts about the story I just read. And, you know, it just really perturbs me that I, what a waste of time. Our media increasingly is narrative media. They have a narrative. They're not just pro-democratic party. They are to the left, and I mean the big government left of the democratic party. And again and again, seem to want to just tell us what they think we need to know so that we will act the way they want us to act instead of giving us all the facts. And if I'm wrong, why did no media outlet, major media outlet, hit Warren and Kamala Harris for ignoring the woman who is still in the race and Kamala, who has more delegates than you have? So you think about process sometimes. And, you know, I, I used to, as a young man, I pretty much ignored process. You know, look, let's go, let's go get the most votes. Who, what matters what the, the particular rules are? But boy, you start to look at the process. Last time with superdelegates, <clears throat> where they were going 97% for Clinton, so that it was possible for, for Bernie Sanders, it didn't work out this way, but it would have been possible for Bernie Sanders to win a majority of the votes in the primaries, but lose, that's, that's democracy as practiced by the Democratic Party. And this time, where the candidate that they just do not want to have there, who can't, Tulsi Gabbard can't go on any outlet, TV outlet, other than Fox, without being so attacked that she can't get any message out. And why is she attacked? Because she talked to Bashar al-Assad? She didn't, she didn't say, hey, I love Syria, the way that Bernie Sanders seems to be willing to forgive anything Cuba's done, like put people in jail and kill them. But that's okay, that's not a big deal. 
but she went and talked to Bashar al-Assad and that somehow now when when Republicans had a had a hard time because Obama was talking to Iran the media didn't seem to think that was so terrible so this is we we've, we've got a serious problem and it's right there just laid out in front of our face that if you don't have the views that fit the major media narrative, you are not welcome in American politics. You are not allowed to run for president. Sure, you can run, and you can even win a delegate, but we are not going to cover you. We are not going to talk about you. Every other candidate is going to ignore you, and we're going to find a way to write the rules to push you off the debate stage. And we don't care if you're a woman, but we love women. And we're just sick to death that there's no women still in this race, except for the woman that we despise and don't want in. <laughs> Not that they have any opinion. It's all objective journalism. And I don't want to get too lowbrow here, but she's also, without a doubt, the most attractive woman ever to be in politics in America. <laughs> and if you wanted independent men voters, if you wanted, if you need to really beat Trump, wouldn't it cross your mind that maybe the most attractive and well-spoken and least offensive woman to appear in politics in our lifetime is the one that you despise? That just seems bizarre to me. Uh, though it's not because it's all CIA. But yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I wrote something on Facebook today, and I was talking about uh, Chai uh, Ingwen, who is the president of Taiwan, and I probably screwed up. Boy, it's so hard to make those Mandarin pronunciations, but I'm working on it. And, um, and it's something that keeps me young, trying to figure this stuff out. But anyway, I think she's wonderful. And she is, was called her whole campaign, it was kind of the tough but cute because she loves cats and she had all these social media things. Brilliant campaign, brilliant campaign to connect with people. But also then, you know, when it comes time for her to give a tongue lashing to Xi Jinping, she's there. And, and so anyway, I just, I, I, I was writing about that and I mentioned her cute but tough campaign. And then I realized that well, most of the people reading this don't have any real sense of what her campaign was about and probably are thinking, I'm, oh, she's really good because she's cute. And so I actually, I thought, oh, I went back and I wrote, hey, look, I'm not making some sexist remark. Um, and frankly, if the world wasn't so sexist, it, there'd be nothing wrong with noticing that someone's attractive. That's not, we really ought to be able to say, oh, I think she's really attractive without people thinking, oh, you know, I'm divorcing my wife and, and running off to, you know, see Tulsi Gabbard, or that we just think only about attractiveness. Um, and of course, this isn't just men and women. You know, women also see guys, not me, but some guys as really attractive. And, and so there's nothing wrong with that. But we see so much of it in in the wrong way. For instance, the media, I mean, we hear about this, all the sexism and the way that women are treated differently. Well, the main one that's just right there in front of our face is that when you read an article about a man, they don't talk about what he's wearing. But when you read an article, a lot of articles about a female candidate, they talk about what they're wearing. I don't understand that. Why are they doing that? 
However, I also think like when people attacked Michelle Obama for, you know, wearing sleeveless dresses, I, I, did, I didn't get any of that. But whether it was a faux pas to wear sleeveless dresses or whatever that whole controversy was about, I'm thinking, why are you attacking the first lady? Because she's not making policy. And why are you attacking her on what she wears? Is that not the most just bizarre thing? But most of the people who were attacking her or who today would be attacking Melania Trump are not men who are somehow attacking because, oh, I didn't like what she wore. We don't care what, what you're wearing. I mean, we do kind of notice a lot of times whether we think a woman is cute or not cute, but I kind of think women have that same, you know, radar that tells them. Um, so it, it, I hate that we have to somehow, you know, walk on eggshells to call somebody cute or pretty, um, and, and probably we shouldn't. But there is an element because we have allowed official publications like the papers of record, the New York Times and the Washington Post to constantly be telling us what, I mean, anytime they tell us what a woman is wearing, they need about a hundred letters of the editor saying, what are you talking about? Tell us what she said and what she believes. And if she was wearing something that was, you know, dangerous, if she had like a nuke, you know, on her back, well, okay, then, then, you know, tell us. But if she had a nice pantsuit or something, who needs to know that? Again, though, it's not sexism coming from this, you know, the masses of Americans who just aren't sophisticated enough. It's sexism coming from on high. It's sexism from the elite. The, the, you know, the average Joe on the street doesn't write for the Washington Post or the New York Times. So uh, this whole thing, it, you know, I think sometimes the tendency to say, oh, it's all crap. Well, there is, you know, I, I think I might have thought that before I got to a point where as my daughters are getting older, I don't like the messages I'm hearing from TV. I don't like the messages that I'm hearing from other people that objectify women. I don't want women to be thinking all the time about, oh, what do I look like? Because that's the only thing society cares about. I don't want to live in that society. So I think we, we, you know, this is not a call to, hey, forget, uh, sexism is always a canard. But the problem is the main sexism we're being spoon-fed by the media is largely a canard. Did you uh, remember the white suit scandal of Tulsi Gabbard? No. There's an article, I'm looking at an article in the New York Times right now that's, that's, that's titled, Tulsi Gabbard's white pantsuit isn't winning. <laughs> that's from that's from back in november uh, so <laughs> i'm sure that what it was is they they interviewed a bunch of men on the street you know uh, construction workers in new york city and the times went down there and they all said you know i like tabby uh tulsa gabbard i like her foreign policy but those white pantsuits they just don't do it for me. That must have been the impetus for that story, Tim. I guess so. <laughs> On that note of irony, um, perhaps we should go back serious for a moment to remind people that you're at thisiscommonsense.com every day of the week and that there is also a donation clicking button there. Yes, there is. And, and please go and help us um, and, uh, and leave a few comments. Hey. 
on, on our different scripts. If you agree or if you disagree, anything that we're not talking about that we ought to be talking about. Because what we're trying to do is expand freedom to get people to focus on the fact that what's beautiful about America, the reason we're wealthy, the reason we're happier than your average bear is because we're freer. And if we lose that, it's not, you know, it's not because our flag is red, white, and blue. And, and so it, it is about talking about it. And it is about reaching out and bringing people together. We want you to be part of this. Help us do it. It takes, it takes money to make the world go round and even to get common sense out. So help us with a contribution. I'm six, 60 years old now, which, you know, I'm a little, the only good part about that, Tim, is that I'm hoping I can find some tennis tournaments that I can play in the 60 and over. That's the only upside I see, only upside. But punish me for being 60. Make me just rub it in by writing a check or by going online, which is easier, and putting it on your credit card, $60 to help get common sense out day after day, week after week, we can do things to make this a better world, to leave more freedom for our kids and our grandkids and future generations. But we gotta do it, we gotta do it together. I'm out here trying to do it, help me, please. And thank you. This has been This Week of Common Sense for the first week of March, 2020. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find me at, at Workman on social media. Oh, and we have a few more things to say. You can get the, the audio podcast on SoundCloud or on Stitcher. It's This Week with Common Sense. Is it This Week with Common Sense? This Week in Common Sense. In Common Sense. In Common Sense. See, I don't even know. Thank God you're here, Tim. Uh, but but uh, you can get the audio there. We put up a video so that you can see my beautiful face or whatever face I have. Uh, on Saturday, every Saturday, Monday through Friday, we do a commentary every day talking about issues, might be in a local level someplace, but that matter to people everywhere, might be about what's happening in Hong Kong and what you know the Chinese butchers of Beijing are trying to do there, but stuff that matters. And so I, I urge you to be part of it, and uh, you can do that at thisiscommonsense.com.